following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see you guys this morning. As you are getting settled, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible. If you need to use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, go ahead and grab it and, and, and make your way to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 13. We are continuing in our, our journey in and around and through this often overlooked book of the Bible, but as you're getting there, I, I, I was curious to see if there was anybody else here this morning who, who like me, have you, have, have you ever had a moment when the preciousness of time hits your soul like a lightning bolt. I mean, not just the mental ascent to the preciousness of time, but you feel it in a moment just how, how delicate and passing it is. Time is our most precious and at the same time most precarious asset. I say precarious because, again, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves this morning, we each realize that in the end we have no control over time. You don't know what the next 10 minutes hold for you. You don't really know when the next breath will be your last. Yet somehow, we, we tend to think and then live as though we have some kind of control over it. And because of that, we tend to treat time and the days that we are given on this earth with less care and less urgency than is rightly deserved. And I'll be honest, when I have those moments, when the weightiness and the preciousness of time just hits my heart and my soul, it comes most often with a twinge of regret. In an instant, and it's not usually prolonged, but it's like, a moment comes and I sense just how precious and delicate time is. And it's in that same moment that I see often all of the ways that I've chosen to spend the time that I've been granted. And I see what could have been if I had just invested that time differently. The preciousness of the days hits my heart and I see what could be different with my wife, could have been different with my kids? What could have been different with my work? And maybe most importantly, what could have been in my relationship with Jesus? It's like it all happens in a moment. And I'm confronted with the reality that I choose to spend my days on things that in the end are what I want the most that I've decided serve me the best. Because honestly, I, I think there will always be more days and more time for other things. It's like in those moments, I, I hear myself saying and realizing, man, this, this could have been so much deeper by now. It hits me and I see this could have been so much richer. And that twinge of regret comes. I've been asking God over the last year to, to give me more and more of those moments where the preciousness of my days overwhelms my heart and my soul. And in fact, I've tried look for different ways to go out of my way, to put myself in the way of those moments. I've actually got a poster. It's in my house. It's going into my office. It's called My Life in Weeks. And it's made by a company uh, where you send or you, you put in your birth date. 
and they send you a poster and it's just a collection of squares on a poster that goes from the week you were born to 90 years old. And every week you just fill in another square. It comes pre-filled to the point when you bought the poster and then you fill it in. And so on Sunday, before I come and have the opportunity to do what God has called me to do, it's there again to fill in. One more week and I, I see it get closer. And it's just a way of trying to put myself in a position to be reminded of just how precious the time that he's given me even this week really is. But God gave me one of those moments this last week. It was on Friday when I had the privilege of attending a funeral of a lovely woman who, who passed away at 96 years old, having lived an extremely full life, loving her husband, loving her sons, loving her Savior. We heard stories of it. It was a celebration, really, of just the grace of God in Christ. And, and sometimes, you know, it is funerals and lost that, that can be the opportunity for these moments for the preciousness of time to sit in on us. And, and I'll be honest, it wasn't really the, the funeral and the moment that, that God used on Friday. It was, it was a song that we sang at the service, a song I have not heard or probably sung since I was a child. It's an old hymn called Blessed Assurance. If you grew up in the church, you might be familiar with it. Some of you might be young enough to have grown up in churches that don't sing those old hymns. So while you grew up in the church, you didn't sing that one. But I hadn't heard it since I was a kid. And rarely did you ever sing all the verses. But we sang all the verses. And it was at verse 3 when I had to stop singing. Because that moment sat on my soul. Like the weight and the preciousness of time. And I, I stopped singing the words in front of me. The, the verse went like this. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting. Looking above. Filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. And in that moment, I found myself saying, I wish I could sing this with deeper conviction. I really wish I could sing, this is my song. Watching and, and waiting, looking above, lost in his love. Because after all these years, I should be able to sing it with deeper conviction. His steadfast love for me has never faded. I want this to be my song. I, I, I want my ability and my, my voice to confess these words with full sincerity and be able to say, this is descriptive of me. That's what I want. And, and I think if we're honest, a great many of you in here would say the same thing. This is what we want. So why doesn't it? Why, why doesn't it feel so descriptive of our everyday? As I was thinking about it, I was reminded of something the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, he said, look carefully. Right? So look closely. Pay really close attention to. That's what he's saying. Look carefully at how you walk. Remember in the scriptures, and including in Proverbs and Psalms, as we've been going through it, when you talk about the way someone walks, you're talking about their manner of life, their manner of living, the patterns of decisions they're making and the motivations behind those decisions, how they're living. Look carefully at how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully that you're, you're living, you're walking, the path you're on is in accordance with reality as God defines it. Remember? That's what Proverbs is all about. Wisdom. Living skillfully in God's world under God's rule for His glory and your deepest joy. Look carefully at how you live, the steps you take, why you take them, that you might live wisely, not unwise. Why? That you might make the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. As we live in a world that's out of step with reality as God defines it. A world where foolishness masquerades as wisdom. 
And if we fail to look carefully, to pay attention to how we walk, the path we're on, we'll squander the time that we've been given. And it's in those moments when the preciousness of time sets in. Just like it did for me on Friday. I'm sent back to what we've been looking at over and over again in the book of Proverbs. The theme, the heartbeat, the foundation, the controlling reality of everything Solomon is saying. That you and I would know. We would know wisdom. That we might be able to walk wisely in God's world. Making the best use of the precious gift of time. The days that he's given us. And this morning, as we we turn to God's word in Proverbs, Solomon is going to expose for us a particular kind of folly, a, a particular kind of foolishness that can leave us not looking carefully at how we walk, not being shaped by the preciousness and the gift of time and therefore always leaving us wanting of soul. It's a particular kind of folly. It's a particular kind of foolishness. And Solomon is going to call it throughout the entire book, the folly of the sluggard. Now, here's the thing. I know that when some of you hear me say that, you immediately think you're off the hook. Sluggard doesn't apply to you in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So let me say this at the outset instead of trying to show you along the way. Every single one of us has an inner sluggard that is at work in our hearts. And it has an impact on the days in which God has given us and how we live them. It has an impact on what we put our hands to, which is the particular lens that you often think about this in the book of Proverbs. But it doesn't just have an impact to the things that we put our hands to. It has an impact to the cultivation and formation of our soul. The work of the ongoing transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's the lens I want us to consider more importantly this morning. Not just the lens of what we put our hands to, but the impact of the folly of the inner sluggard on your spiritual formation. Your enjoyment of Jesus. Your ongoing transformation into his image and likeness. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 is where we're going to start. and I had a hard time picking where to start, but I decided to start here because here Solomon gets below the surface straight away. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. See, straight away, Solomon takes us below the surface realities of how the inner sluggard is seen in the way that we live. And he takes us right to the heart of the issue. And he reminds us that the folly of the sluggard and the folly of the inner sluggard that's at work in our hearts is always rooted in misdirected cravings. It's an issue of of what the soul wants most deeply. Remember, we're not first thinkers. At first, we're cravers. We have deep desires and cravings that then shape the way we think about what it is that we want. And we might want things that look good and are right, but more often than not, we want them out of their correct priority. And Solomon says here, what the sluggard soul wants and craves is something that is not shaped by reality as God defines it. Life in his world under his rule for his glory and the sluggard's deepest joy. What it craves and what it wants is something that it has defined in its own eyes as delightful, necessary, pleasing. The cravings are just misdirected. And it's misguided for you and I to hear this this morning and immediately think that 
the sluggard, as you picture it in your mind, is just this truly lazy human that can't seem to be bothered to do anything or, or you know, at all. In fact, the, the, the inner sluggard can leave you being very busy. As one writer says, a, a lazy sluggard can have a full schedule, but they endure it in a spiritual haze, begrudging every interruption that comes, resenting needy people, and being driven by a craving for the next comfort. What the inner sluggard craves is the comfort and the ease that it's defined in its own eyes as most satisfying and delightful for you. Frederick Beekner wrote it this way. He says, a sluggard might be a very busy man or a woman, one who goes through the motions, yet flies on automatic pilot. Like a man with a bad head cold, he has mostly lost his sense of taste and smell. People come and go, but through glazed eyes, he hardly notices them. He's letting things in life just run their course, just getting through their life. Evenings without number, obliterated by television. Evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but just a narcotic defense against time. He's one who can be very busy, yet not looking carefully at all at how he walks in God's world, shaped by reality as God defines it. A sluggard and the inner sluggard in you speaking to you isn't necessarily doing nothing. He's just neglecting what matters most, which is why it's very possible to be extremely busy doing all kinds of churchy things, yet neglect our spiritual well-being and wake up one day or have a moment like I had on Friday where the preciousness of time sits on your soul and God, God opens up that gracious gift for you to feel it. And you hear yourself go, oh, man, we could be so much deeper by now, Jesus. It could be so much richer by now. The sluggard, one writer said, and the inner sluggard in you is on a chronic quest for comfort that just compounds boredom. Boredom with God, boredom with people, and boredom with life. And there's a high price to pay when you and I let the inner sluggard have the last voice. There's a high price, and we think about it through the lens of what you put your hands to with your, your jobs. There's a high price if we were to think about it more specifically in the relationships that you have, but there's a high price that's paid when we let the inner sluggard have the last voice when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and the formation of our soul. It will cost us deep and abiding joy and vitality in the Lord. What Solomon helps us to see is that the root comes from what it is we crave. And the way that that inner slugger begins to speak and steer the ship is by convincing us in any given moment that just a little bit more is what we really need. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Solomon says, How long will you lie there, O slugger? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. Your inner sluggard is always craving just a little bit more. And he gains ground and control in your heart bit by bit each day. I mean, really, what harm could a little bit more actually do? I mean, what harm could just one more push of the snooze button really do? I mean, really, what, what harm could just one more refresh of the timeline really cause? The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke wrote a fantastic commentary on the book of Proverbs. And he called these just a little bit more small surrenders. And he said they may seem like small surrenders. But the sluggard gains ground in your heart one small surrender at a time. And giving in to just a little more, one small surrender at a time, always leaves us with less. 
one small surrender at a time and we become less sensitive to the voice and conviction of the Spirit of God at work in our heart. One small surrender at a time trains our selfishness and self-conceit that it's what matters most. So one pastor said centuries ago, Satan robs God's children just one more at a time. Robs us of the joy, robs us of the vitality, robs us of the assurance, robs us of the depth, robs us one small surrender at a time. Not only that, your, your inner sluggard, as it's speaking and trying to gain control, always tells you that tomorrow is going to come. There's always tomorrow. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, Solomon says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he seeks his harvest and has nothing. Right? Autumn is the planting season. Autumn is the cultivating season. All the time that you deal with the ground, you put in the seed, you begin to handle what you've sowed so that when harvest comes, you can go and reap the fruit of the cultivation. And what he says is this sluggard, for whatever reason, we don't know, just a little more of something probably kept him not going out and doing the work he was supposed to do. Yet when the season for harvest comes, he goes out to the field with all this stuff expecting there to be a harvest. Expecting it just to be there. I remember one person reminding us in a class I was in that you and I ought to learn to live with a farmer's view of life. A farmer pays attention to the season he's in, not the feelings he has. Right? I'm sure for that farmer, in, in, in August it was hot, planting was going to be hard, the ground might have been dry, the work was going to be difficult, all kinds of things he wanted a little bit more of, maybe sleep a little bit longer put it off another day. Tomorrow will come. I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better. I'll do it tomorrow. All kinds of reasons. But yet somehow he expected something to happen. I mean, how many times have you woken up and realized that tomorrow came and it was too late for whatever it is you were trying to do? I remember I tasted this reality in a different way a number of years ago and I was looking at a picture recently, and this is how it happened, of my, of my son, who was 10 at the time. And there was nothing about the picture that caused this, but I was looking at the picture and the weightiness of time, again, it, it sat on my soul and I felt it. And I saw the picture, and I remember not just the moment of the picture, but I remembered him being that age. And I remember myself thinking, I'm a pastor for goodness sake. There, sh there, there should be more that I've done to help him see Jesus. But I remember him being 10 and me feeling that way and always thinking, well, goodness, I've got at least eight more years. I'll figure out how to do this, right? I'll get the perfect way to sit down with him and everybody else and, and help him see Jesus. I'll find the perfect way to do it. And I looked at the picture recently. He's 18. And while I look at what God's done in his heart from 10 to 18, I look at it and go, I don't know that much changed for me. I don't know how much from that moment when I began to say, well, there's always next year. I'll fix this next year. I'll do more. I don't know when. And God was so kind. There's always tomorrow. There's always another day. I realized just recently that it's been just over 25 years since God rescued my heart when I was in college. And yet in the same moment, when I looked at that picture of my son and was thinking back and the weightiness of time was sitting on me, I had the same, the same moment in my own heart when I began to think, how many times have I just said, tomorrow or next year? I'll, I'll begin to cultivate that rhythm where I can get solitude with God. I'll really listen to him, really learn to surrender my heart and my cares and my needs to him. I, to really begin to, to listen to his voice and his word and, and put these things into my life so that I can get close. Tomorrow, the next year, the next year. 25 years. And I just thought, man, how much deeper, how much more intimate how much stronger could it have been? There's always another day, always another year. And yet somehow, we tend to expect 
that when the moment comes, the difficulty comes, or the situation comes, or the conversation comes, a harvest of righteous encouragement, a harvest of righteous assurance, a, a harvest of righteous words is just supposed to be there. Like this farmer. The, the inner slugger that is always trying to fight for control in your heart is, is treating each precious moment that God has given you in life as no big deal. There's no astonishment to your inner slugger that God is giving you one more day, one more moment, one more breath to know Jesus more deeply. And when you come face to face with it, right, when you realize what's happening and, and maybe you begin to see the, 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 the comma, you see the slugger at work, you know what? He's full of reasons and excuses. And Proverbs twenty two thirteen 13 says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Right, the, the, the inner sluggard in you has a way to, to take what your heart is craving the most and in your mind come up with reasons for why whatever might be difficult or required of you and what matters most for you to not do it so that you might have what your heart is craving most in the moment. Spurgeon said, laziness is a great lion maker. He who does little dreams much and his imagination can create not only a lion but a whole menagerie of wild beasts. Your inner sluggard can create imaginary circumstances. Here are the danger of lions so that you might be able to go after what you crave most deep in your heart and make it look right and make it look wise. I mean, again, thinking in the lens and the context of the formation of our souls. How many times have we created a line in the street that keeps us from cultivating a solitude and a quiet and a stillness with God to hear his voice, to allow his spirit to search our hearts just to be with him? How many lions have we created in the street that keep us from crossing said street to love our neighbor as ourselves? Sometimes those things are difficult. They're not easy. They're uncomfortable. They require sacrifice. And the inner sluggard has got all kinds of reasons that you don't need to go about doing that. And the crazy thing is, Solomon reminds us, we can believe our own stories. He says in chapter 26, verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Right, the, the sluggard, the inner sluggard at work in you is completely resistant to anything that might expose the reality of what's going on. Seven wise men can come and say, there's no lion in the street. I've been there. Look, I'm on the phone with, with John. He's in the street. There's no lion there. And your inner sluggard is going to double down. Because to not do that would be to expose what's really going on. Uh, an example of how it kind of works, and I'll, I'll tell you how it works for me, right? I've got this heart rate monitor that I put on first thing in the morning before I get out of bed. There's an app on my phone that takes what is read in three minutes on that heart rate monitor and begins to calculate through all of its math and all of its craziness the way that stress has accumulated on my heart and how my body and my heart is responding to it. Now, stress is anything. It can be mental, it can be physical, it can be emotional. Just how my body responded to the stress of the previous day and how it responded to the way that I slept. And it lets me know first thing in the morning how that stress is taking out a toll on my body. And it gives me a, a, a readout like, hey, it's, it's, it's not going well for you this morning, right? Like, take it easy today. Or, hey, you, you've really done really well. You've responded to whatever stress levels you've had. Great. You can go hard today and do something and, and add stress to your, to your body and it, it'll handle it okay. And I can go to bed thinking eagerly about the time that I have mentally prepared to be able to get up, to be with Jesus, to listen, the place I'm going to do it, how it's going to happen. And I could take that reading first thing in the morning and it tell me, fantastic, this is a day to go. And I'll look at it and go, yeah, I know my body. <laughs> I know how important sleep is. I know how restorative sleep is. 
Now, I think what's most important, knowing myself the way I do, is that I lay here for another hour. Because that, that is what I need. It doesn't matter what objective data might be saying about my body. It didn't matter what I was even thinking was most necessary and desirable when I went to bed. I know in my own eyes what's best for me in the moment. And truth can be sacrificed on the altar of self-justification as the inner sluggard says, eh, there's a line out there. It's best just to stay put. And yet on the occasion that we do make the effort, move past some of the excuses of the inner sluggard, he's not done, right? Your inner sluggard will help convince you that what you've done is good enough for now. Maybe you're just getting started. Proverbs 19, verse 24, Solomon says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and won't even bring it back to his mouth. Now, what a picture, right? You got a dish. I don't know what you like to put in the dish. Maybe Cheetos, I don't know. Put your hand in the bowl of Cheetos and you just leave it there collecting Cheeto dust. I mean, the idea of bringing it back to your mouth is just too much for you to be able to bear, right? That's the picture. It's meant to sound silly, but oh my goodness. How easy is it? I mean, again, you can look at it through the lens of what we put our hands to, the work we do. You can put it through the lens of of the people in our lives and and the relationships that we have. But I I want us to put it through the lens of of really the spiritual formation of our soul and our, our relationship with Jesus and being with Jesus. How easy is it that you and I just settle for, well, that's good enough for now. Let's not overdo it, right? My inner sluggard is reminding me, hey, I need to take a break. Don't overdo it, right? I got my my Bible out this morning. I got up. I didn't put four snoozes, just two, and I'm up. I know exactly where I'm going to go to be able to be quiet and be still with the Lord. I got my Bible. I've even got a little notebook next to me so that all the distractions that might come to my mind, I can just write them down and get them away so I can just sit and be still and I can listen. That's great. That's good enough for today. I got started, right? I'll reward myself. A little time with ESPN. I need to see who won last night because I went to bed before the game was over so I could get up and be with Jesus. So I need to go to the ESPN, you know. I got a couple texts I need to fire off and get ahead of the day. That's good enough for now, right? And little by little, much is missed out on. Just a little bit. Much is missed out on. Much with Jesus. Solomon says it another way with another picture. I love it. In Proverbs 12, 27, he says, whoever is slothful. So he's talking about the sluggard, the inner sluggard, right? The sluggard will not roast his game. But the diligent man will get precious wealth. Now, some of your translations fill that out with some words. And he says, he won't roast the game he took while hunting. He had to go get the game, right? So there's the picture. This guy didn't snooze, right? He got up. If you've ever hunted, you know the work that goes into hunting. He got up. He got himself ready. He was prepared the night before. He had all the instruments, the tools, the weapons that he needed. He went. He put himself in a position where he could stalk his prey. It often takes a long time to stalk to get to your prey. He does all of that work. He kills the actual prey. He gets the prey back to his house. Eh, That's good enough. He doesn't actually cook it and eat it. And in the end, he's just as malnourished as the one who never got out of bed. Just as malnourished as the one who put his hand in the bowl was like, eh, good enough. Solomon is painting a picture. How much nourishment has the inner sluggard robbed from our souls? How much nourishment have we let the inner sluggard rob from our families, from our, our church, from a watching world who's looking How much nourishment have we let him rob? Remember what he said in the beginning. uh, The soul of the sluggard is always left craving. It's never satisfied. It's never truly nourished. He, He says other things that help us see it, but he paints a picture of the accumulated toll that allowing the inner sluggard to dictate life takes on us. He does it in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34. 
He paints this picture. He says, I, so this is him speaking. I passed by the field of a sluggard, right? By the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Now, again, remember the lens through which we're going to look at this. Jesus often used these agricultural pictures to speak of the heart and the activity of the heart and what was going on in the heart. And that's the way we're going to think about it. So this is what he's talking about. This sluggard who did not live life with the fear of God and reality in God's world under his rule for his glory and his joy. The preciousness of time. There was always a little bit more. There's always tomorrow. Hey, right now it's okay. And this is what Solomon said. Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and the stone wall was broken down. And so he said, I saw it and I considered it. He didn't just walk by it. He stopped and he looked at it. And I received instruction. See, that's what we're doing this morning. We're just listening. We're stopping, we're looking, we're listening that God might, through his word, instruct us, help us to see. And it might be sobering. It might even be difficult. But it's instructive for our good. What did he realize when he stopped and he saw the accumulated toll on the life of the sluggard? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Always a little bit more. Always tomorrow. Hey, what we've done, that's good enough for now. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Poverty of soul will come upon you like a robber. Unchecked, the inner sluggard will always eventually destroy the soul and leave it malnourished and wanting. And so Solomon says, chapter 6, verse 9, how long will you lie there? How long? One way that God tends to wake us up from lying there is to confront us with the consequences of this. Right? The observations that Solomon has made that we've been reading through, they're not meant to make you depressed. They're meant to inspire you. They're meant to wake you up. They're meant to stir in you in awe for the worth of wisdom as God gives it to us. They're meant to expose the inner sluggard at work in your heart and the misguided cravings that are forming your heart and giving, giving direction to the steps of your life. But he doesn't just make observations. He begins to direct too. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, this is what he says. He says, hey, sluggard, right? You see it. You see it at work in you. Here's what he says. Go to the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Right? First thing he says is, go look at what God created. You don't need to run to your favorite theologian. Don't need to run to whoever that might be. Like, go look at what God created. There's wisdom there. And what does he intend for the sluggard in you to learn by going to look at what he created, in particular in the ant? The diligence that leaves the soul satisfied. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, Right? There's no boss. There's no pastor. Within themselves is the motivation and the diligence to do what matters most. No matter how many obstacles you throw in that ant's way this 4th of July at your picnic, she's going to figure out how to do what she needs to do. And nobody's going to be telling her there to do it. She's going to figure out how to get around whatever you're trying to do to get that Cheeto. Your spiritual maturation and the diligence and the consistency and the discipline and the rhythm that's required that we see at work, even in this picture of the ant, in the end, it is your responsibility. We can encourage one another, support one another, help one another, but in the end, we have a responsibility when it comes to this diligence. We present ourselves day by day to God in a rhythm of being with Him. Presenting ourselves to him in a series of steps and, and ways and habits that are, that are counterforming what all of the just a little mores the inner slugger in us craves. We're putting ourselves in that position for him to change the, 
the cravings and the desires of our heart. Go look. Watch her. Not only that, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Watch the consistency. Watch the diligence. There's no stopping and starting. There's no, hey, that was good enough for now. I got the Cheeto halfway there. It was big. I'll come back. It'll still be there, right? There's no hoping that when the winter comes, it'll all work out. Food will just be there. No, there's a consistency in the diligence that is working now, even as the same consistency and diligence is preparing for what's ahead. And this is huge. It's a whole probably another sermon in and of itself, but the consistency and the diligence at work that we see in the ant when it comes to the cultivation of our own soul, being with Jesus today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's not just for the joy and the strength and the assurance of our hearts today. It is preparatory work for when the winter blows into your life. And I don't know if it's come, when it's come, but it's coming. A winter is going to blow in one day. And the diligence and the cultivation and the work with God's spirit on your heart, in your formation, is preparing you for that day. Lest the winter come and you just expect that you're going to be able to face it with deep and abiding joy. With strong and lasting courage. With words of life and grace and encouragement. She's doing this now, not just for the present, but in preparation for what's to come. Diligent, spirit-shaped rhythms of grace, they begin to cultivate the cravings of our heart. We can't just flip a switch to want what God wants. But working with him and his spirit, we can begin to cultivate the longings in the right direction. We can point them in the right direction. It's within our capacity and responsibility to diligently work with his spirit to cultivate the cravings of our soul. And we do it the same way the sluggard tries to rob the joy. It's one small surrender to his spirit at a time. It's not just this giant thing that changes. It's one small surrender to the spirit of God at a time. That he begins to restore and encourage and replenish the vitality and the joy and the assurance. Go take a look at the ant. And you'll realize, as one theologian said, that the sluggard, it's no freak. But as often as not, it's just an ordinary man or a woman who's made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. And they've all been imperceptible. They've been as pleasant as simply falling asleep. Look carefully at how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. Making the best use of time because it's so precious. When we let the inner sluggard in our heart steer the ship, he spreads up. A disease that, man, just begins to choke out the sensitivity of our soul to the voice of God's spirit at work. The sensitivity of our heart to the conviction of our sin. The delight and the sensitivity of our heart to the enjoyment of Jesus and the grace of God. Friends, do you, do you see? Do you see an inner sluggard at work in you? Solomon says, how long will you lie there? When will you wake up? How long will you settle for the cravings of the inner sluggard that leave your soul unnourished and always wanting? Remember, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Supplied with what? Enduring joy. Enduring assurance, all the riches of God in Christ. 
So listen, when you see the inner sluggard in the mirror, don't run from it. Don't look at it and then turn away forgetting what you've seen. Don't run. Look your inner sluggard straight in the eye and praise God for giving you sight. Praise God for helping you see what you couldn't see on your own. It's a gift of his grace. I tell you, if you'll do it and you see it, it'll sting. It'll be unpleasant. But I promise you, it will lead to something so much greater. Don't run from it. See it. Thank God for giving you eyes to see it so that you can confess that the inner sluggard has been steering the ship of your soul. That he's been whispering, he's been speaking, and he's been winning. Own it. Confess it. And plead with God by his grace and the work of his Holy Spirit in your heart to cultivate in you the diligence that we see when we look at his created order, even at the ant. And realize that when you see it, the regret and the discomfort that you feel, it doesn't get the last word. The grace of his transformation does. And if the sluggard gains ground in your heart one small surrender at a time, how much more so your vitality in the work of his Holy Spirit, one small surrender to his spirit at a time. And the voice of the sluggard will get increasingly more quiet. Don't run away. Look it square in the eyes. Thank God for helping you see. Plead with him for the work of his spirit in you, pushing back against the voice of the sluggard. And then go look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. When you get a gracious look at your inner sluggard, you need to take a long, hard, satisfying look at Jesus. Your steadfast, diligent Savior. The great high priest who saves to the uttermost, not just partway. The good shepherd who brings all, not just some, but all of his sheep all the way home. Go take a hard look at Jesus who Spurgeon said plowed in the autumn cold of life forsaking every excuse not to save us and he never cried lion though he walked into the den in our place. Go take a long hard look at Jesus who didn't come take on the form of a human live in our place the life we were created to live and then die the death that we deserve to die and say hmm Maybe that was too much. He never said, look, I've done enough on this earth. I'll just stop here. Go take a long, hard look at him who did not leave one step of the journey of our salvation to us to achieve. Ask him. Ask him to give you the urgency of eternity. A humble reverence for the preciousness of time that brings us to a point of surrender. Each day we wake up with the reality that we're one day closer to the day that we're going to appear before him. Ask him, not just for intermittent moments, but for eyes to see day by day the urgency of eternity. Man, I have to believe that if that was the way that we lived, our inner sluggard really would never have space to win. Friends, imagine a church filled with men and women energized by the grace of God, living with the urgency of eternity. Men and women of conviction and diligence. Man, that's exactly what the world needs to see in us today. Let me, let me close with this. Ray Ortland Sr., not Ray Ortland Jr. We tend to quote Ray Ortland Jr. and we give away his book on the gospel here, but his dad was a pastor in California. And in his book, Make My Life a Miracle, he said this, your danger in mind is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. The 20th century temptation is that really, again, 20th century, you can see when he wrote it, the 20th century temptations that really sap our spiritual power are the television, the banana cream pie, the easy chair, and the credit card. 
The Christian wins or loses in these seemingly innocent moments of decision. But just one more. And so he says, Lord, make my life a miracle. Make my life a miracle of your grace. This is my prayer for us this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to respond to God's word. and We're going to give you a minute to just reflect on God's word. And in silence, let you consider what God might be doing in your heart as you've, as you've heard his word this morning. And then we're going to respond. For those who have believed upon Jesus by the grace of God, through the repentance of your sin and faith in him as king, as, as savior, you're going to be invited to come forward and proclaim your confidence in Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Not the part way savior, not that this is good enough for now, the author and the perfecter of your faith as you come forward and receive communion. And we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate and make much of him with our voices. And then we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us and then we'll give you some time to just sit with his word and then we'll respond together. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us this day. Lord, help us not to take this day and this next breath for granted. We need you by the work of your Holy Spirit to work in us a sense of the urgency of eternity, the preciousness of the day that you've given us, the time that you've given us, and that you would give us eyes by your Holy Spirit to look carefully at the day that we might walk wisely according to reality as you have defined it for your glory and our joy. Give us eyes, Lord, as uncomfortable as it is, more frequently than it already happens to see the inner sluggard at work in us. Give us ears to be more attentive to his voice whispering, whispering lies and encouragements to us that will only rob us of vitality and life and confidence in you. Lord, give us a clearer ear to hear your Holy Spirit at work in us. Lord, help us to see, see where we give in to the inner sluggard that we might be able to put it to death and turn from it. Lord, give us by your Holy Spirit a deeper taste and longing and craving for connection with you, for a vitality and a joy that is born out of knowing you, of tasting and seeing just how good you truly are. We ask that you would do this work in us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.